0: Welcome back to the LG Procast, the podcast for Victoria's local government decision makers. In our first edition for 2023, we're looking into how local governments can support Indigenous Australians by where they spend their dollar. With us today is Greg Welsh, a business leader who has been recognised for economic empowerment of Indigenous peoples and championing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. He's lending his advice on how councils can support Indigenous communities through their procurement. This interview is brought to you by the Public Sector Recruitment Experts at Public Sector People. They have specialists working all across local government divisions and in diverse positions at every level. So if you're looking to recruit, you should email info at publicsectorpeople.com.au to get started. On to our interview, Greg Welsh is the Director of Winya, a majority Aboriginal-owned business that has been designing and manufacturing sustainable office furniture for the last eight years across Australia with many customers being local governments. They run their own Indigenous employment program where they place Indigenous staff into their supply chain to maximise Indigenous employment opportunities and outcomes. Here's Greg with some insight into how their model works and the rationale. We've
1: probably got 60 or 70 different companies in the supply chain we work with around Australia in any one day who are part of our program. So when we give a business enough work, part of the the conversation they had back with me is I say, remember 18 months ago when we first started talking about this, we said, when you're getting enough work out of us, you're going to put an Aboriginal trainee in your business? And they go, yep. said, it's time now, and they do it because they can see that rather than us being just talking and asking for something, we've actually delivered on the goods. They've made some money along the journey and they're all long-term traineeships. They're not like casual labor or anything like that. We're hoping to create long-term Aboriginal middle-class because they're more likely to employ more Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people don't really want to be on social security. They want to be proud people like everyone else. And through our model, I think we're creating that opportunity around Australia.
0: Fitting into this model, Councils as customers of Aboriginal-owned businesses are all at different stages right now. Their level of involvement is often dictated by the size of Aboriginal communities in their local government area and complicated by the visibility of their businesses.
1: Councils have got no... Unless they're in an Aboriginal area, particularly, they they really don't have a strong mandate around Indigenous procurement. We've found that there's certain councils that have just decided to do it and, and decided to actually be strong in this. And others uh, have not taken the journey at all. You know, we've got probably 10 or 20 councils around Australia who actively use us uh, and others who don't have even a policy or guidelines around Indigenous procurement. Certainly if they've got uh, a reasonable-sized Indigenous community in their council area, getting all those younger people employed and enrolled is a big benefit to the community. Look, it's hard for councils, the same as it's hard for any corporate as well. Uh, And I think maybe it's even harder for councils because councils are seeing what's in their community. And if there's no Aboriginal businesses up and running strong in their community, they've got this view of what an Aboriginal business potentially is. And the problem is that, unfortunately, this is the very first generation of Aboriginal businesses in Australia. Aboriginals have traded for 60,000 years. There's shells from Broome in Cairns. So they've traded, but in the traditional white Anglo-Saxon business sense, this is the very first generation, nothing handed from father to daughter or son. So they haven't got the visibility of what a, a good Aboriginal business sometimes looks like in some of these remote areas, or if they do, it's in a very specific window that they're used to seeing. And that's it's a, a risk factor for councils because councils traditionally are fairly risk averse.
0: So, how do you find businesses that benefit Aboriginal communities in your local government area? The issue of visibility is again important, and Greg has advice on identifying these businesses and the right questions to ask.
1: Okay, so there is a fair bit of, um, there's a fair bit of controversy in the Aboriginal community about this, and. You know, governments, through their best endeavours, have put in procurement policies to try and incentivise government departments and others to use Aboriginal businesses, and they're putting you know, long-term targets by 2028 to reach 3% of their procurement is with Aboriginal people, which they've done because 3% of the Aboriginal uh, of the Australian population identifies as Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. So that's where the number comes from. The issue for the Indigenous community at the moment is even though these targets are probably only about in some states only one, one and a half percent. You've got, it's called it as it is, black cladding happening where you've got a lot of long-established Anglo businesses have set up little operating structures atop their businesses to say, oh look, uh, we're an Aboriginal business, give us all this, you know, money that's been set aside. And I think it's pretty, it's pretty rough when they're doing this to basically target 1.5% of what's been set aside for the government to do a major social change in our country. I I, I think it's pretty bloody sad, honestly. And that's the problem for local government and most corporates who have got reconciliation action plans and things who are trying to do the right thing is how do they, they know they're doing something genuine? You know, I remember sitting in front of the head of ANZ procurement probably about a year and a half ago, and he says, look, tell us why you're a proper Aboriginal business and what do you do? So we go through everything we do. We're bringing stuff from remote communities and we get timbers from Arnhem Land and everything else we do and we try and place Aboriginal trainees everywhere and maximise our own Indigenous employment. And he goes, oh, good, we'll talk now. I said, okay, where is that coming from? And he says, I'm getting so sick and tired of people pretending to be Aboriginal businesses just because they're trying to get in front of me. Uh, And that's that's a bad thing because this is money that's actually being I suppose governments try to direct a bit to, to make Aboriginal businesses successful because every Aboriginal business is 100% more likely to employ another Aboriginal person. And if you factor that across, you know, the 8,000-odd registered Aboriginal businesses around Australia, you know, you've got a lot of change in Aboriginal communities. You've got a lot of Aboriginal employment growth. One of the things that you've got to look at with any Aboriginal business, and I've talked about this often, is that Aboriginal businesses don't necessarily have to employ Aboriginal people. Okay. If you're expecting the person that comes into you from every Aboriginal business to be a a person of dark skin, you're not doing that business any favor because you're saying, well, I'm only going to deal with you if I can see a black person in front of me, which is just wrong as well. Okay, and it's restricting the growth in Aboriginal businesses. So as an Aboriginal owned business. 25% of our staff are Aboriginal people. And so when you're dealing with some of our businesses in some states, I've actually got no Aboriginal staff in some offices purely because in the city, I can't find Aboriginal staff. So that's part of why our program is where we place Aboriginal trainees in the factories on the city rim because it's close to their work rather than trying to convince someone to come 40Ks into the city for an office job. So I think understanding that Aboriginal businesses are, are small generally. They need a bit of help. And that you can actually help them because you've got a platform as local government where you've actually got your ducks in a row fairly well because you're a long established business, you've got your systems and processes and you can actually help that business rather than being demanding as much. And I'm not looking for a free kick for Aboriginal businesses, but I'm just saying if you're genuine about what you're trying to achieve, don't necessarily expect them to be quite as precise as land lease or BHP because if you don't give it a go... You'll be sitting here with the same issue in, you know, five years' time. We still haven't given them a go.
0: Unlike private companies, councils answer to constituents in a very specific geographic area. This makes the question of where they target their procurement all the more sensitive.
1: It's really important for local government to be truly local. Okay, so that it's it's easy for white Australians to say, "Oh, Aboriginal people," but like reality is. Yeah, when Captain Cook arrived here, there was five hundred different language groups in Australia. It's if you picture it this way, it's like, you know, if you're the mayor of Paris saying, Oh, let's put this German painting in the Paris Town Hall, because it looks really pretty. So I think the going local and making sure you're authentic with your local Aboriginal communities more vital for councils than it is with anyone we do a lot of programs around when we're doing work for councils where we're trying to make sure that we're pulling in local indigenous artists that then morph that into the potentially the fabrics they're using on their chairs and everything else so that's a true uh meaningful for that local community as opposed to generic aboriginal art which is just rude nearly
0: correctly identifying the businesses that will have the greatest impact is half the battle the other half is proactively helping them manage the hurdles of the procurement process. The strictness of council procurement processes could be hampering new small businesses that may need technical support.
1: You've got to realise that potentially the smaller Aboriginal businesses you're engaging with, they're not BHP. Let's talk about a small council in Western Victoria or something. The Aboriginal community they're dealing with there. They may have a couple of people who are Aboriginal people who own trucks and graders and things like that who would do a great job because they want to do a good job because they're proud of their community. But they may not have the ISO 9001 QA certifications and some of the other boxes ticked that you're going to demand in your tender as part of your risk mitigation as a local government tender. So, I think this is part of what council's going to look at. And the other part of it is, and we get asked for it all the time show us your financials. And we show them our financials. But there's lots of small Aboriginal businesses out there that, when you look at their financials, they're not going to stack up like BHP either. You know, let's be frank. These are small businesses. They've got the same issues as most small businesses, except double because they're an Indigenous small business who's probably had double difficulty getting finance of things, but they're also running the business completely different to normal white Anglo-Saxon business. That's because in an Aboriginal business when they survey the purpose of the business, family and community is always coming up as number two or number three in the purpose for that business, other than just you know, growing and surviving and feeding that individual's family. Whereas in a normal Anglo business, you'll have profit and shareholders and various other things as part of the structure. So they're not looking to maximize their profit per se. They're actually looking to maximize what's happening in their community. So they've probably got more people employed than they necessarily would otherwise have if it was a leanly run business. And they're doing that because as part of the community, they're trying to give jobs to their own people. So when you do a tender and look at the PL and the balance sheet, They're going to be making probably less than the equivalent size Anglo business that's driving the business harder without this social DNA that's part of all Aboriginal businesses that I'm aware of, because they're trying to run the business differently. There's registration processes out there to help councils understand who uh, an Aboriginal business is. There's Supply Nation, which most people are aware of. But what I think is more important for councils to do, because they are local, is talk to your state-based Indigenous chambers of commerce. Because they're closer to the community and they've got more businesses that they know of than Supply Nation. So you've got like there's nearly ten thousand registered Aboriginal businesses across all of state-based chambers. There's only about fifteen hundred with Supply Nation. So you're not getting the full view of Aboriginal businesses, particularly the local government level, if you're relying on the federal government Supply Nation screening process. Uh, your local Indigenous chambers are also probably more likely to spend the time and effort with you as a local government to make sure you're finding the right people and making sure it works for you too.
0: If you're looking to review how your council engages with Indigenous business, here is some final advice from Greg to wrap us up.
1: Look, I think um, a lot of people got wraps, and if I can be rude, most wraps get um, a lot of work put in them. they probably pay consultants and they sit on the shelves. And they tick it off and say, Oh, yeah, we're going to rap. Look, at the end of the day, a rap's not worth anything unless you're going to do something with it. And you don't have to do everything, you just actually got to have a willingness to take baby steps even. If you get, you know, NADOC week, for example, and we get run by every man and their dog for NADOC week, I'll come and do a speech. And, you know, I've got to, I've been quite blunt recently because I've actually said, Well, that's sort of call reconciliation and everything else because it's supposed to be coming a bit back the other way. It's not supposed to be. You've invited an Aboriginal person to a morning tea and therefore you've ticked the box. It's, if you try to be truly focused on reconciliation, it's got to be coming back the other direction. As a, a normal human being, I'd like to understand and think that we can do better now, so let's take a few steps towards it. Uh, and that's what I think reconciliation is about. And you can do that just by deciding to do genuine non-token business with Aboriginal businesses. And what I mean by that is don't just ring them up on MADOC Week and ask them to do your catering. Okay, try and work with them to get the catering you want for the other 51 weeks a year, if that's what you're going to do. So you're actually creating something meaningful with them, and you're hopefully letting them grow and put other Aboriginal employees into their business.
0: Thank you to Greg for this episode's interview, to Public Sector People for sponsoring the LG Procast, and thank you for joining us.